I take refuge in the Buddha awakened mind. I take refuge in the Dharma, the instructions to awaken. I take refuge in the Sangha, the community to which all beings belong. Also, I give rise to bodhicitta, reminding myself that this and all practice I do for others. So one of my practices that I've had for a very long time is to write a poem every day. And I don't write one every day, so I don't like to confess that, but I don't. And if I didn't tell you, Hogan might. (laughs) So yesterday, I always try to write a poem about what's happening right now. And what's happening right now for me and maybe some of these things for you also is there's a fire outside and that's been burning for a very long time and people are distressed and people are practicing which I appreciate so much but in my talks with people this week a lot of people were saying something which I could loosely translate as the sky is falling And when I went home last night, I felt that heaviness in the air and I had some sense, oh yeah, the sky could be falling. So I've been noticing that all week. And so that's what I wrote a poem about and I thought that I would write it from the perspective of my tradition. And so I tried to put a little bit of mirror samadhi in there, mirror-like wisdom, because you've been doing that, I hear. So here's the poem, it's called, The Sky Is Not Falling, Grandfather Fire Came to Remind You. The ash falling outside is not the sky. The sky is not falling. This ash is the green grass from someplace else, a field turned to dust, a brown uncle who died from pesticides years ago. This ash is a forest, a meadow, a fern. It's a delicate singed vine of a scarlet runner bean from a garden in Medford planted a long time ago before your parents was born. This ash was a bungalow in California filled with the laughter of children It was a salmonberry seed carried aloft by a finch or a bush tit, planted by chance right out there, right where we sit, right now on Chinook land. Thank you, bird. Thank you, berry. It's not the sky that's falling. This dust is the homes of beings with families and stories. It is the beings themselves, the elk and the hawks and the ants and fungus and coyotes and somebody's neighbor trapped and on fire. It is their fear and my sorrow. 
It is the fruition of ignorance, of disrespect, of forgetfulness. It is also the essence. It is the sparkling appearance of wisdom right before your eyes. It is the sacred dust of life turning to death, turning to life again. This is exactly how the truth unfolds. Grandfather Fire just came to remind you. One day you too, I too, will be dust falling from the sky or kicked up in small clouds by children playing in the park down in Klatskanai. We have been dust many times already. Let this knowing come home to your belly right now on this breath. See, says Grandfather Fire. Go outside today, kneel down and touch this dust, carry a spoonful to your altar. Make offerings of gratitude for the gifts of all these beings to your awakening. Trees who offered oxygen, rivers who quenched your thirst, fat Adam squash in the monastery garden with smooth skin that filled your stomach and gave you seeds for this year and next year. Bees mold, Politicians, poets, termites, mosquitoes, black-tailed deer, spinach-appled, tiny mason bees that do so much good, crows eating french fries on Burnside. A hundred viruses whose names we don't know, mischievous squirrels, bats and bears, all of these made thousands and thousands of offerings to you. Did you notice? Did you say thank you? Do you feel this love, this miracle, that beautiful thing that happens over and over? Does it make you stronger, satisfied, grateful? They gave you their blessings. What did you spend those blessings on? With all these blessings, I tell myself I should have superpowers by now. You do, says Grandfather Fire. Start using them. Doctors and farmers and the old woman who grows medicinal herbs in pots on her porch, butterflies, inchworms, fish, and stray dogs, these are your community and they need you. There is not one who does not deserve your love and your effort. Angry, pinched face, bigots, and dazzling tiny gauzed wing moths all have a place together. We have to make room for each other. Please offer your prayers. Please practice. Some of them gave their life for yours. They are your family. They are falling from the sky. Your parents, your children, your guardians, your lovers in this life and the past. Turkey vultures and mice, feral cats and awkward blushing hop vines have perished so that you can thrive. Leather-faced veterans standing beside the road and millet farmers in faraway villages have plowed your fields in other places. What will you plant now? Grandfather Fire came to ask. The rain is coming soon to also remind you those beings who disappeared will all come back. 
Even now, tiny tendrils of new growth unfold beneath the ground as it cools. Towering redwoods, fireweed, and bees will come back. It will take some time. Even now, seeds that have been setting for centuries are opening underneath the scorched earth. Muskrat will come from under the muddy water. Blue jays will start arguments, and worms will worry and worry and worry. Banana slugs will magically find their way back to the monastery. Welcome them. Let them find their own place. They know what to do. They know where to go. Stay out of the way. Say, I know, I know. Now I understand. Please take what you need. Please have more. I'll take less. Thank you for your patience. I was so young, even though my body is so old. I'm listening now. Let's apologize to the earth and the stars and all beings for our carelessness, greed, anger, and ignorance, unkind speech, and mistaken views. But when you do this, remember, you are speaking to yourself, to your body, to your mind, your heart. Say it out loud. Keep reminding yourself. Grandfather Fire says he's leaving this week. He has other work to do over his shoulder. He whispers one more thing. Are you listening? He says, take your place as a sacred leader. Stop hiding out in the mantle of smallness. It's selfish and it's careless. You are wisdom in a body of action. Stand up now and do your work. I made a path around you, he says. You are still here. There's a reason that you are alive. There is a reason that your body is not falling from the sky as ash. You are the scar. You are the great wisdom that sees this and understands. You are the great love that arrives and departs on every breath. You are primordial knowing, turning the mind of the universe in a new direction. Yes, your heart, your mind, you. This beautiful thing is yours to do. You are doing it already. It's time that you own this. That's pretty intense to read your own poetry. <laughs> That's hard for a shy person to do. Do we have a clock? That would be great, thanks. All right. Whew. Try to get off the hot seat of that poem. I think I have read my poems out loud maybe less than 10 times in 20 years. I think I'm learning that from Kise. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So what is practice? Why do we meditate? Why do we do retreats? Why does a place like this exist? 
people, of course, practice for different reasons. And one of them, one of mine for sure, is that we have a longing or a vision or a yearning to know who we really are. And maybe at some point in our life, we've had an experience where we caught a glimpse of that. Almost everyone can tell you when that moment was that they saw or felt or knew or tasted somehow who they really were. And it's precious when it happens. Maybe it comes when you see a sunset or have a baby or someone dies. But then time goes by and we get back in a smaller world of hope and fear and we're driven by our habits again. And that meaning that we long for again feels elusive. So what do we do? We want to wake up again to step back into that river of a life that we're actually living. There's something that's so vital and so rich about that. And we, as that, that memory of wakefulness fades, we, at the same time, as it goes down, what goes up is a sense maybe of being asleep. And we find ourselves caught again in that frustrating cycle that all sentient beings experience, where we, we are fundamentally good and we're trying so hard to erase suffering, but it feels clear that every time we patch it here, it breaks open over here. And we feel like I can't do this alone. And yet we look and all the other beings and we see even if we all do it together, somehow it's not going to work. And even if it feels like we can get other people to work, by the time we get good at that, we see that our death is on the horizon. And so sometimes a despair arises. And maybe you want to wake up, but you don't know how. And so you fall back into the patterns of anesthetizing that suffering with entertainment. You buy a better house, you make a better body, you accumulate things, you keep trying to have enough. I know I'm singing to the choir here. And it's confusing because it kind of works. I was here on a retreat once and uh, Ajahn Amaro said, it's like that squeaky shopping cart at Safeway. Kind of works. It kind of works, or it works for an aisle, and then you turn the corner and it won't go. And I think that's a great, great example of samsara. I mean, it definitely is paying attention. It's like buying a new car. I remember when I got my new car, which actually had 100,000 miles on it, but it was new to me. It smells good, it looks good, it works so well, and it has all kinds of promises that I will be safe, I will be able to have freedom. I look a little more important in this kind of car. It's so exciting until it's not. Like everything else in life, the excitement of a new car fades because change is a fundamental truth of life. And that same car, which was so fantastic and so full of promise, begins to smell different and look different and even drive different. It's just a car. It's just a car. So you know how this story goes. Sooner or later you wake up one day and you find yourself in what I like to think of as a shallow or a deep pool of disappointment. I just want to be awake, but somehow I still feel separate from everything else, even from my own experience, my own body, my own mind. 
And so you come someplace like this and you practice or you practice at home and you make a little place and you put some effort into it and you realize this business of waking up is hard. First, you have to realize you're asleep and to be honest, that's not really that pleasant. And then you need to identify what keeps us asleep and you have to start to take that apart and you keep disrupting it until those patterns and those habits and those stories no longer function. But all the time it's happening, when it kind of goes, as you know well, in cycles like this, we start opening up to truth because even a person whose practice is as wobbly as mine can sit on a cushion and you will see the truth even if accidentally. And we begin to experience the things that we have suppressed or avoided or ignored or even truths that we've overlooked like impermanence. Those patterns that keep us asleep, or I think of it as a kind of drugged state, begin to be disrupted. Each time you put your awareness on one of those patterns, they get weaker and weaker. And so our thoughts and our speech and our ideas and habits, all of those things that run our lives and keep us chained to confusion, and those things that distort the experience of mirror-like wisdom, begin to dissolve, and at the same time they dissolve, they begin to rise up and fight back. And so when you come to a retreat, or if you practice deeply at home, or even if you begin to study and think about Dharma more and begin to see these patterns directly, you can expect, I don't know, what comes to mind is rodeo. You can expect a rodeo because they're going to rise up and they're going to undermine the attention that's bringing us into this deeper relationship with our experience and with the truth of what we are. And to be honest with you, so I've been practicing just a little bit less than 30 years now and teaching since 2001. And what I see at that point is that many people stop practicing when their patterns fight back, when they have a sense that something they, they cling to, they depend on for happiness, is about to fall apart or be challenged. They just give up. So they don't always stop going to the Dharma Center. They don't always stop doing retreat. But maybe they start to engage in this thing that I call Buddhism light. But if you continue, and some people do, you do, here you are, there you are, your meditation gets more stable and clear, and we begin to see that those patterns and everything that's constructed out of them is a movement of mind. It's just a movement of mind. It's experience arising. To experience that is quite a bit more radical than to say it. So how do we cause all that to happen? Well, every school has their mechanism, and the truth is I don't really know the Zen means for that. 
but more or less in all the schools, those things, those methods overlap because they are all medicine for the same disease. They begin by disrupting the sense of, I am separate from everything else. That is not me, that is not mine. They begin to take that apart. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways you do it and we do it too is in loving kindness practice and things that open the heart and the barriers fall away and fall away and fall away. First you begin to love yourself and then you begin to love the people that are easy to love and then you love strangers and finally it's hard to find an enemy. And at some point in there you begin to catch glimpses of some different truth that you are part of the fabric of something bigger and something whole, something that doesn't exclude. And so it doesn't make sense to hate and oppress and divide. And gradually that sense of feeling separate begins to dissolve. And there in that dissolveness is a kind of knowing. Then teachings begin to make sense because you see them with your own eyes and your own heart and it feels always to me like you're coming home to something that's familiar. Oh, I, I know this place. It's like your old house where you grew up but maybe the yard is different and the furniture got changed out. And many people at this point get curious because it's interesting. And so they get a kind of funny determination. It's like a little kid trying to walk. They're going across. I remember my kids, the room, and boom, they fall down on that big fluffy diaper. And then you think they will cry, but they don't. There's kind of a, hey, I move through space. <laughs> So they get up and they try it again and they smack into something else and you think, oh, they'll never walk again. This is so hard. They don't want to do it. And then they go, hey, I'm over here. <laughs> and it goes on like that. I see you remember that too. So when we see, when we look into that space of clarity where it's not all clogged up by habits, it's energizing and that vitality and that aliveness that we wanted, it comes in little flashes, does it not? And sometimes, even after you get up on the cushion, it stays with you. It's quite wonderful. For me, I begin to crave that thing. And at the same time that it's alive and energetic and electric, it's also tranquil and full of space. And in that spaciousness, there is this other thing that has always been for me so magnetic, and it is that anything can arise. Anything. Boom, I'm in Paris. Boom, I'm perfect. Boom, the inner critic comes up. No, you just think you're perfect. You're not. Boom, I'm a different gender. Boom, I'm a different shape. Like that. Boom, world peace. Boom, I was responsible. Little by little, this experience of ordinary consciousness, which is solidly based on this false truth of a separate self, gives way to the experience of 
pristine awareness of original mind. Isn't that a complicated phrase? It's better, I think, to look at that than it is to talk about it. So for moments, and then I think more and more stably, the radiance, the energy of original mind is liberated. Now when you experience things, you see them with this so-called mirror-like wisdom. And what this means is that uh, I think can be best, I hope you did this on retreat, best experienced by actually walking up to a mirror. So on our retreat, we had big mirrors, a whole wall of mirrors in the bathroom. And I don't know why, because on retreat, you always look not that great, right? But I guess it's the architectural thing to put mirrors in bathrooms. So whole wall of mirrors. And our assignment was go into that and stand up close until all you can see is your own face. So what I found the first time I tried that, the room was about this light. I so hope you did this. If you didn't, please do. You need a big mirror. Walk up and get close so you don't see the frame. And all you see is your reflection. And when you see that reflection, you're looking at the thing that you know better than you know anything else. You're looking at an image which is so familiar, you should know it inside and out. And yet, I can remember very clearly the first time I did that, I looked at my own face and I had no idea what I was seeing. I saw so many things and things I thought would be there weren't. And words fell away. And there was just this experience, not of, hey, it's me, but hey, what is that? We say in the Tibetan tradition, this seeing your own face is not seeing this face, but it's seeing mind and it's new. And in the beginning, like seeing any truth for the first time, it's awkward. And you see it and it's clear and then you don't and it's unclear and you see it again and it's clear and you don't and it's unclear. And pretty soon you might lose track of what exactly is going on and you have a sense there's just seeing happening. Seeing, not seeing. Seeing, not seeing. And that experience is also quite awkward. And what it usually used to do to me was pop me into a space of saying, I, do, I wish I didn't have to do this exercise. The bathroom floor is so cold. And I left my shoes in the cabin. And I feel really cranky towards my teacher right now. But if you stick with it and you come back to it, because in our case, if we left the bathroom, someone would know that we weren't in there doing our practice. And I had too much pride to let that happen. So I would stay there and look and look and look. And finally, in the end, it wasn't personal anymore. It didn't feel even like it was coming from me. It was just seeing happening. And I can distinctly remember, and I hope you had this experience, and if you don't, keep trying, that 
I suddenly had the sense of, I don't know anything about anything anymore. And the whole space of my mind was a question mark. Well, you might have done that on retreat. I was thinking about you all week and wondering if you were in the bathrooms looking in the mirrors. And I tried to stay out of the bathroom in my place so that if you were in there, I wouldn't bump into you and derail your experience. But when you're doing those kinds of things in a place like the monastery, sooner or later, someone will come with a small bell and that will be over and you will go back to chopping carrots and taking chickpeas out of their pods. But something will call you back to that mirror. Something in you will say while you peel chickpeas, I want that to happen again. And so you come back maybe in the evening to the meditation hall or back to your cushion at home and you sit there and you wish that you had the mirror. You want to do that again, but there isn't any mirror and you're just looking at your mind. I have no idea what you're doing in Zazen, but you're sitting there doing your Zazen. And then maybe kind of something happens that you feel like there's a mirror there because there's a reflection there and everybody knows no mirror, no reflection. And so you continue and maybe it's late at night and maybe you're sitting Yaza if your name is Gensei and maybe your mind is still and you see reflections and space of nothing and between those little dreamlets, it's still and it's quiet. And you are so aware that anything and everything can come from mind. And then you go to sleep, then you wake up, and maybe the next practice day is not so good. Maybe some old story, some old habit comes up. Maybe your knees hurt, mine do. But you know at that point that what happens in mind is experience arising in the mind and you have some sense of what disrupts it. You know that dullness, you know that doubt, you know that worry and anxiety, that these things disrupt that and that they don't disrupt the mirror itself but they are a coating on the mirror and that through practices like Zazen and Shamatha we polish the mirror and polish the mirror and polish the mirror. And I don't know, but I'm told that one day it arises as perfectly clear. We say in the Tibetan tradition that if you do these practices enough, if you contact mirror-like wisdom enough, that eventually other wisdoms arise and we begin to experience that any experience, sorrow, joy, fear, happiness, is the same basic nature. This is called rochik, which means one taste or one flavor. So the flavor of all of the experience at that point in practice, and I am really talking about something I read in a book, becomes the same. So I used to ask, and many students do ask, 
Well, if we stabilize those wisdoms and we accomplish one taste, don't we become uncaring? Does our heart close? Are we disinterested in other people or peace or justice or well-being? And the answer is no. And I don't know why, but my confidence in this is so great. We are still compelled by compassion, and now we are compelled by clear-minded love, not distorted love. And we reach out to that part of life which is suffering, and we care for it. And we do this because of the dissolving of the sense of separateness that I was talking about before. And we remember what it was like to be confused and hurting and to be immature and to be unnourished. And so we nurture it because we remember that. And we hold others up and we empower them and we let them walk their own path in their own way. Because that is the nature of wisdom and that is the nature of activity infused with truth. And gradually we mature into that love and we know that we are also just an experience arising. We are just energy happening. And in that, clinging falls away and self-concern and worry fall away. And seeing the suffering of the world and knowing that giving this experience up happens every day. It happens a hundred times a day. Then we realize that we would give our whole life for others to be able to experience this to be relieved of the burden of separateness. And we realize that though it would be hard work in another way, it would be easy because nothing is ever lost. And so we do. And we use these tools that I call this thing and this phrase that I borrowed from the Dalai Lama of emotional disarmament. I just love that phrase. It's so important right now. We conquer our anger, our greed, our panic, our separateness. And we trade this pressing human imperative to be right for an imperative to love. So what does it mean about life in the real world? It means that we practice and we pray. But the Dalai Lama has said, and I believe that he is right, prayer is not enough. We have to take responsibility in all of the places that we can. So in this time of great fear, great change, which is always happening somewhere in the world, it's just that we, we are focused on it now because it's happening here. We should rise up to meet our long-term challenges wherever they are, here or there or anywhere, because all of those things are also possibilities. 
this can seem, I think, overwhelming when we think about it, but I want to say it doesn't need to be. It's one small thing, one small thing, one small thing, one small thing. Nothing was ever accomplished that wasn't just one small workable thing. Does this bring a kind of a spiritual pride when we start doing that and we become priests or lamas or teachers or senior practitioners and lay people? It doesn't need to. The Dalai Lama said having pride about spiritual accomplishment is like going to a great banquet that someone else has prepared for your benefit and being proud that you stuffed yourself. His Holiness wrote this recently. As a Buddhist, I believe in the principles of impermanence. Eventually this virus will pass. This is a guy who knows a lot about what comes and goes, right? As I have seen wars and other terrible threats pass in my lifetime, and we will have the opportunity to rebuild our global community as we have done so many times before, I sincerely hope that everyone can stay safe and stay calm. At this time of uncertainty, it's important that we do not lose hope and confidence in the constructive efforts so many are already making. We know the virus is contagious. We know that hate and disrest are contagious, but so is clarity and so is love and so is optimism and so is courage and so is determination. You have and I have tasted this mirror-like wisdom whether we recognize it or not. And so with that comes the responsibility to embody it. This is the way that wisdom is transmitted. Of course, it will not be perfect, it will not be stable, because you and I are learning. And here we are learning together, so I thank you for your practice. It is medicine for all the world.